And so as we wrap up this series, One Month to Live, we're actually going to go up to the grave, and then we're going to take a few steps past it. You see, one of the things um, that happened for me in life is I had an opportunity to go to a coffee shop with a friend. And, and this was not like a normal meeting at a coffee shop. I had a buddy uh, who started off life, his professional life in ministry, and then through a variety of things, he moved into life insurance sales. Now, if you don't know what life insurance is, life insurance is, it's, what happens is you, you pay a little bit a month, and then if you are to die unexpectedly, you get this like mass sum that gets paid out. And so what you do in life insurance is you start paying into life insurance, you start buying life insurance so that like for me, who works and provides for my family, if I were to like fall off the stage and die unexpectedly, like there'd be some money that would go to my family to help them kind of make it through the rough times. And so my friend who starts selling insurance, life insurance, says, hey, Michael, can we go, can we go to this coffee shop and kind of meet up and start talking through uh, your financial future and things like that. And so the conversation goes on and on and on. Now, some of you are at a point in life where you've done like goal setting. Uh, has anybody ever done like a life plan or something like that? And so like in, in like massive goal setting or life plans, one of the things that life coaches or goal setting people will help you think about is they'll kind of ask the question, hey, listen, here's what I want you to do. And it's kind of morbid and it's kind of sad, but I want you to like stop right now and think about your funeral. Think about what it would be like to actually be in a casket if you could hear what people are saying about you. And so what happens at a funeral is the people that love you the most, the people that know you the most, they get up on stage, they say lots and lots of nice things about you. So what is it, what is it that you want people to say about you? And so as we're, as we're going through this meeting, he's talking about life insurance and those types of things. He asked me those, those types of questions. Hey, what kind of, what kind of life do you want to live? Those types of things. But then he takes it a step further. He says, he says okay, so here's what's going to happen. They're going to take the casket and they're going to go put it in the cemetery. And then you're going to be there. But your wife and your kids, they're going to load up into the minivan and they're going to go back home. And they're going to keep living life. And so the question he asked me and the question that really kind of started making me think about life after death, not life after death when it comes to heaven or hell and what my eternity is, but life after death as in what is it going to be like for the people I love after I'm gone. He said, what kind of life do you want your wife and your kids to have after you're gone? It was a really good sales pitch, so I bought the life insurance. Um, I really appreciated that from him, and he, he appreciated it too. Um, and then after that conversation, sorry about that, after that conversation, my wife found out that I was worth exponentially more to her dead than alive. Um, and from that day on, I started buying her flowers so there wasn't an accident at home. Um, and so, the, but I just, I walked away from that meeting and, and I started just kind of asking myself the questions like, man, I love my wife. I love my kids. Like, what kind of legacy do I want to leave them? Now, regardless, um, regardless and this is, this is one of the things we have to just wrap our heads around, Regardless of if you actually have one month to live or not, one of the things you begin to realize in life is that the time we have with people in this world is incredibly limited. In fact, we actually don't have enough time with people around us to waste it. See, here's what's going to happen in May. And this happens every single May. There have been teachers that have poured their hearts into a group of students. And every single May, when the end of the school year comes, those students that they've poured into pack up their bags and run out of the doors excited to be gone. And the teacher, 
who has invested their heart and their soul into these students for a year realizes that her time or his time with those students is effectively over. And one of the things you realize as life goes on is that like you have these childhood best friends and you love them in elementary school and stuff like that, but it doesn't take many changes to middle school and high school for you to sit there and realize, hey, the people I loved, the people I knew, the best friends that I thought would be with me forever are just not with me now. And if you start playing sports and you do Little League, you grew up together, some of you leave sports, some of you change teams and stuff like that, the teammates that you thought you would always play ball with are no longer teammates. And they get replaced by new people. And then if you're like me, you hit 30 years old and you realize that your childhood best friend you haven't spoken to in over a decade. You see, one of the things we have to wrestle with and one of the things we have to realize is that even if we don't have a terminal illness, we don't have that much time with the people around us. So one of the things I wrestle with right now as a dad, um, and this is like one of those like sad things that dads wrestle with, is I have a daughter who I'm going to walk to kindergarten. And it's not going to be long, and I know this because people tell me over and over again how short this time is, it's not going to be long before I walk her down the aisle on her wedding day. And it's going to be over. And there are some of you in this room who have older brothers and sisters and you grew up with, and every Christmas memory, every best memory you have is with older brother and sister, and they moved off to Lubbock to go to Tech. They moved off to College Station to go to A&M. They went somewhere else, and those relationships are incredibly different. And you didn't realize at the time when they were in the house how short those moments were going to be. All of us realize this. At some point, it hits you. The relationships we have on this earth are incredibly short-lived, and we do not have enough time with the people we love to waste it. And so I want to ask a question for us to wrestle with. Before we dive into Scripture, I want to get our minds kind of wrapped around this question because the way we answer this question is the answer to the legacy we're going to leave. As we wrap up this One Month to Live series, kind of asking the question, what would I do? What would I do if I realized I had one month to live? Some of us would consider our legacy, what we leave to the people behind us. And so here's the question. How do you want people to live differently? How do you want people to live differently because you were in their lives? How do you want people to live differently because you were in their lives? Now, the answer to this question from a financial sense is, you know, with the life insurance and stuff like that, like the question, if you're ever, ever buying life insurance, the answer to this question is, how much money do you want them to have when you're gone? And, and yeah, $1 billion, that would be awesome. That would cost so much money a month. But anyway, how much, how much do you want them to have? And, and while that's noble, and yes, it, once you get to a point to provide for a family, you're going to answer that question in those terms. But I think all of us in our heart know that that's just one level. And it's probably a very minor level in which we want to answer this question. Better question to ask is, in, in the terms of how people view themselves, how do you want them to live differently? Like some of you in this room right now have grown up, and you're like, man, I just, I wish my parents... I wish my parents had brought me up a different way so that I viewed life a little bit differently. I wish I didn't stress out as much because of this, or I wish I believed in myself more, or I wish I wasn't so angry about, or I wish I wasn't so competitive, or whatever it is. And so you, like, you can look back at that right now and say, I just wish I'd been treated a little bit differently. And then others of you are like, man, I'm just so glad. I'm so glad that every Thanksgiving we went and served there because it's really given me a heart for or I'm so glad that when, when mission trips came up, my parents said, no, you're going to that. I don't care if you go on the retreats. I don't care if you go to camp, but you are going to go serve. And I just have this heart for serving. And so some of you can even see the imprint of legacies that are being left on you 
And so as, as students, as teammates, as coworkers, you, you have the opportunity to ask the question. When I leave this team, when I leave this school, when I leave this group of friends, and even when I leave this home, how do I want people to live differently, think differently, believe differently, act differently because I was in their life? So tonight we're going to dive into 2 Timothy 4. And as, as, we, as we look into this, we, we need to understand that 2 Timothy, or the book of 2 Timothy, is actually a letter written from Paul to Timothy. Now this is actually an incredibly intimate letter. This is, this is so funny that 2,000 years after this was written that, that millions upon millions of people read this letter. Because this was a letter from an individual to an individual. Paul viewed Timothy as his son in the faith. Now, he was not his biological son, it was his son in the faith. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy, and, and in the midst of what we're going to read, we know that Paul knows that his death is imminent. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but Paul knows that he's going to die soon. Now we're going to start in verse 6, and I want you to listen to the graphic reality of what Paul writes and what he understands to be true about his impending death. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. See, Paul has full awareness that he's about to die. He's literally being poured out for the sake of the gospel. If his life was kept up in a cup, 20-ounce cup or whatever, and he starts pouring it out, he realizes when it gets to the bottom, when all that life is poured out, he will fade from this world. And he knows it's coming soon. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now when Paul looks back on his life, he's encouraged. He's encouraged about what he's accomplished. Like an athlete trying to finish a race, he finished the race, he fights the good fight, and he keeps the faith all the way to the end. Through adversity, through trials, he keeps the faith. One of the interesting things about Paul is that Paul did not have some easy Christianity. He didn't become a Christian and all of a sudden things got better in his world. Like Paul's conversion experience left him blind for days. Like just him coming to faith in Christ left him blind. It's an incredible story. And throughout Paul's ministry, he's shipwrecked, he's beaten, he's tried, he is stoned and left for dead multiple times. Like his Christian experience is not inspirational from the standpoint of saying, yeah, I want to be like that. I want to go through those things. And he looks back on that and he says, you know what? Man, I'm glad I finished strong. I could have walked away so many times. I could have given up so many times, but I didn't. And I'm so glad. It was so worth it to keep the faith. Goes on verse 8. Henceforth. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so Paul actually looks forward to his death, anticipating the reward he will receive for faithful service to King Jesus. And he knows, and this is the cool part, he knows that when he receives that reward, he's not going to be by himself. He's going to be surrounded by people that he shared the gospel with. Now, 
if you're somebody who has sacrificed for the sake of the gospel, or you're praying about sacrificing to share the gospel with others, I want to encourage you with this, that one of the greatest joys you will ever have in life as a believer, one of the greatest joys you could ever even imagine as a believer, is witnessing somebody you've poured your heart into begin a relationship with Jesus. So um, when I was 20 years old, and a student at Howard Payne, I received one of the, one of the like, best phone calls I'd ever received. So this is like before the day of like robocalls and scams and stuff like that on cell phones. And so, so I had this like Nokia flip phone or whatever, and uh, it starts like ringing. I look at it, and it's this number I don't know. And so, like I said, it's before scams and stuff like that. And so when you see an unknown number, you actually answer it. So I answered it, and on the other end of the line was my friend named Megan. Megan was a girl that I started um, school with in kindergarten. Megan and I were friends from kindergarten all the way through senior year of high school. We hung out in elementary school. We sat at the same lunch table. We were in the same band and stuff like that in middle school. Ran with the same group of friends in high school. And I, I just have a few memories of her, one of them being on graduation day. Like she came up to me and she said goodbye. And she said, hey, listen, I don't think I'll ever see you again. Because we kind of looked at the trajectories of our lives knowing that, hey, I was going away to school and stuff like that. We only hung out because we were in school together. We didn't really do other things other than those friend, you know, hang out with those friend groups. And so like she, she told me goodbye and goodbye forever. It's kind of a weird experience. So two years later, I answered the phone, having not spoken to her since high school graduation. I'm like, hey, and you, you know, like, like if you haven't heard from somebody in a while, like there's like those like common catching up questions. Hey, how are things going? How's your pet dog or whatever? Like, it's those, those things like, you, you want to get to the question of like, why are you calling me? And you, you don't want to say it that way, but the, the question on your mind is, I haven't heard from you since high school graduation. What's going on that you would seek out my cell phone number and call me? And so we get through the generalities at the beginning, and I ask her, hey, Megan, what, what's going on? And she said to me, so Michael, I became a Christian today. And I just wanted you to know. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, okay. See, part of my story, part of my story is um, I, I grew up and I had the, the luxury of going to school K through 12, kindergarten through 12th grade in the same school system. Okay, and so like, I would, like when I went to kindergarten, I knew which high school I was going to go to. And so I had the same friend groups and stuff like that. I became a believer the summer after eighth grade. And so as I was transitioning into high school, one of the things that happened to me is that I became a believer and my life took a vastly different direction than the friends I had. And so those friends I sat with lunch with, you, you, you remember I said I sat with her at lunch in middle school and we ran with the same friend circles in high school? It just wasn't the same. Like in high school, I found myself losing many, many friends because they looked at me now as the Christian outsider. So I stopped getting invited to things. I was a pretty normal guy. But I stopped getting invited to things, stopped hanging out as frequently outside of school and stuff like that. And so somebody I knew from five years old kind of distanced herself from me. And so she tells me, as 20-year-olds, she said, listen, I became a Christian today, and I just wanted you to know. And it was like the epitome of a humbling experience where, where she would go through something so significant and find it necessary to call me. Like it, it confirmed my faith. 
And it affirmed me for being a strong believer in high school that after two years of not speaking, she would call me and say, you're one of the first people that needs to know. But at the same time, it challenged me because I thought I would never, ever talk to her again. And as a believer, as a Christian, I, I can't tell you how joyful it is to know that you've impacted a life in such a way that they turn to Lord Jesus. And so Paul, as he's wrapping up this part to Timothy, he says, I'm excited. Like, I'm ecstatic about the fact that when I meet Jesus, I'm going to be surrounded by people that I helped find King Jesus. So he finds comfort in it. But before he talks about this, you notice we we started in verse 6. Before he talks about all this, he actually gives Timothy a command kind of a charge or a task to complete. So we're going to jump back to verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Now, I actually appreciate what Paul's doing right here at the beginning. He says, Timothy, I'm giving you a task, but it's not just me giving you the task. Like, I'm doing this, like I'm charging you to do this thing, but what I'm about to tell you, in the presence of God. If you have like older brothers or sisters, you've probably done this, okay? And what I mean by this, like you've probably gone to your older brother or sister and said, hey, dad says you need to, and then whatever it is, it's like all of a sudden like your older brother or sister start listening because if you are the youngest or whatever and you say, hey, I want you to, whatever it is, they don't care. They don't care at all what the youngest says. But if the youngest kid goes into the room and says, hey, dad says you need to, it's like all of a sudden, oh, hey, there's some weight to that. Now, my kids have actually figured that out. Um, and so my kids will go to each other and say, and it's an absolute lie, hey, dad says you need to give me that toy. No, 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 dad never said that. But I appreciate what they're trying to do. And so Paul, Paul speaking to Timothy, he has the authority to tell Timothy, I want you to do this. But instead of leaving it at just that, he says, in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus, Verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth. And they'll wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded and your suffering do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, your job is to preach the word. There will be times where people just don't want to hear the word preached, but the thing you need to do is preach the word. Use it to correct people, but be patient with them. Teach them. Because you're, ready, you're getting ready to go into situations where people don't want to hear the word proclaimed. They don't want to hear the truth. In fact, they don't want to hear what God says so much that they're going to find groups of people. They're going to find teachers to tell them what they want to hear. And they're going to walk down this path into myths, blatant lies about who God is and how this world works. And when they do this, don't lose your head. Don't go crazy. Be sober-minded so that you can allow your teaching of the Word, your preaching of the Word, to bring them back to the truth. So Timothy, present the gospel in a way so that thirsty sinners can find everlasting water. 
and fulfill your ministry. Timothy, in the presence of God, I charge you to preach the word and fulfill your ministry. Do what you were placed on this earth to do. Verse 6. Because I'm dying. I'm not going to be here much longer. I've done my part. I've run my race. And I long to see Jesus face to face and receive the crown that I've poured my life out for. And so if this ministry of the gospel is going to continue, it's going to continue with you. So not too long after writing this letter, church history tells us that Paul is beheaded. As a Roman citizen, Paul would not suffer like Jesus did on the cross being crucified. He got a much more humane execution for his faith. He was beheaded. But instead of the gospel dying out, instead of the church that Timothy led dying, the gospel continues to spread from Timothy to his church to second third, and fourth generation Christians, so much so that the nation that killed Paul, Rome, declares Christianity its national religion within just a few centuries. Paul didn't waste his time. Paul made an impact in the life of someone else so that even after he was gone, his legacy lived on. It's a legacy. That's Timothy living life differently because Paul was a part of it. So I ask the question again as we kind of wrap up. How do you want people to live differently because you were in their lives? How do you want people to live differently because you were in their lives? And I, just, I just want to challenge you, especially if you're like in high school and you're getting ready to leave, or if you're getting ready to leave a team, or if you're getting ready to change a family dynamic or a job or whatever. If you're getting ready to experience a time of transition away from the relationships you're in right now, I, I want to encourage you with this. You will be remembered. You'll be remembered for what you did, but you're going to continue on because of whose lives you've changed. So one of the things we love about this student ministry, one of the things we believe about this student ministry, and one of the things we'll challenge you with in the student ministry is if you're an upperclassman, like the, the expectation is you invest down into the people younger than you. Because we want you to understand that right now, as juniors, as seniors, as sophomores, as freshmen, whatever you are, you have the opportunity to pour down into the next generation of students in here, leaving a legacy because you've impacted their life. So, if we're going to be people that change the lives of others, if we're going to be people who are legacy-minded, ready to live out what Paul calls us to do in Scripture, we've got to get started. So, two challenges for you. Number one, the very first one is begin working toward your legacy today. Begin working today toward what you want to accomplish in the life of somebody else. Now, this is actually very, very difficult. Because for some of us, we realize that in order to impact people's lives differently, we have to change from what we've been doing. So I, I want to set you at ease with this right now. Like, you have to understand that Paul was not always the gospel-toting, world-traveling evangelist, sharing the gospel with anybody who would, who would listen to him. You see, when, when Paul jumps onto the scene in Scripture, the very first encounter we have with Paul is that he's a mob-wielding, Christian-killing, Jesus-hater. The very first picture of Paul in Scripture is he is actually holding the coats of people who are killing the very first person to die for Jesus. 
That's how Paul jumps into the scene, is as a Christian killer. But it was through the grace of Jesus that, that Paul was called to repentance and his life changed and he became the most compelling, the most powerful evangelist this world has ever seen. And if, if you'll submit to the Spirit in your life, he can reorient in your heart so that you can begin working towards something that doesn't even line up with where you've been. Now in order to do that, one of the things we have to, be, we have to do is like to be honest with ourselves. We have to act, actually acknowledge where we've not lined up with this. And so some of this may come in the form of a conversation. It may come in the form of an apology. So I have in my house, I've got four kids, and one of the things I want to do in my house is to actually spend time every single day in family worship. I want to spend 15 minutes a day with my wife and my kids uh, reading the Word, praying together, and worshiping Jesus. Read, pray, sing. Read, pray, sing. Every single day, 15 minutes. And honestly, with a five-year-old, a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a seven-month-old, it's not that hard. It's not difficult to get them in the same room and kind of engaged in that area. But there are seasons of life in which life gets very, very busy, and I find myself having gone days and sometimes even weeks without leading my family in that way. And the reason I bring that up is, like, in my family, in my family, I've kind of answered this legacy question when it comes to Jesus. I said, I want my kids to love worshiping King Jesus. I want them to have such a taste in their mouth for worshiping King Jesus so that, that if they go to a church that doesn't want to worship King Jesus, if they, they start dating somebody who doesn't want to worship King Jesus, if they even start thinking about what their family is going to look like down the road and it's not focused on worshiping King Jesus, I want that to just kind of go against what they know in their heart to be very, very real and very, very fulfilling. So I have this challenge to myself to lead my family daily in family worship. And so I've had to have the conversation with my kids where I, I pull them in together and they're, they're short because, well, they're my kids and they're five, three, two, and seven months old. And so I bring them with me and I just, I say, hey guys, I'm, I'm so sorry. We're about to go sit down right now and we're about to have family worship. And I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm just sorry we haven't done that this week. Like I, I've told you that we want to have family worship and Lydia, she's my daughter, you even asked yesterday if we were going to have family worship. And I said, yeah, we will in just a little bit, but time got away from me. I'm so sorry that I haven't led you in that way. And so I apologize to him, and you know what I do? I get back to work. And for some of you on, on your teams, in your group of friends, if you're trying to leave a legacy in your school, if you're trying to leave a legacy in the locker room or your workplace, you just need to rally some people around you and say, listen, this is the direction I wanted us to go. This is how I wanted to carry myself in the locker room. This is how I want to be as a son or a daughter. This is how I want to be as a brother or a sister. And I, I've, I've strayed from that path. And I, I just want you to know, I'm sorry, but I'm going to start today trying to do it the right way. It's a tough conversation to have, but if we're going to be people who are legacy-minded, Christ-centered in our approach to life, we may have to have those conversations. And the next thing I want to challenge you with, and, and we'll wrap up with this, is to start building a team. And what I mean by that is we do not accomplish big things in isolation. If you read through Paul's letters, if you read through what Paul writes in Scripture, in almost every single book of the Bible that he writes, at the beginning or at the end, all he does is just thank people. He goes down this list of people. He says, hey, and when you see so-and-so, tell them thank you for that. And when you see so-and-so, you tell them thank you. And you tell them thank you, and tell them thank you, and tell them thank you. Because what Paul knew is that to be Christ-centered world changers, you have to do that in community with other people. And so my question for you as a student in this ministry, my question for you maybe in your family, is to kind of wrestle with who is it? Who is it that I need to bring next to me and say, hey, you know what? 
we need to do this together. Like, like if we're going to change the locker room, I need you with me. If we're going to change our family dynamic for how we talk to each other, I need you to do this with me. If, if we're going to look down at, at, at middle school students and kind of like just pour into them, I can't do this alone. Like I need, I need the rest of you high school people with me. Like I need, we need to do this together. And middle school students, like, like if we're going to make fifth graders want to come to student ministry, want to come, like we got to do this together. And so my question for you is to start wrestling with who is it? Who is it that's kind of traveling in the same direction as you? That wants to be Christ-centered in their legacy? Who is it that you can rally around you to kind of strengthen one another. And here's my hope. I, I hope that all of us in this room have more than one month to live. I really do. The reality is we may not. And so as we, as we ask this question, what would I do? What would I do if I only had one month to live? As believers, as believers, we've we got to start answering that question in terms of how do we want people to live their lives differently because we were a part of it. And when we start thinking that way, thinking about how we want to impact the lives of others for the sake of the gospel, we can start making a difference in the kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father, you are great. You are worthy to be praised. And we 